Welcome to the CSBS podcast, a podcast series of the Center for Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The purpose of the podcast is to showcase our researchers, give voice to our community, and if we can, have some fun along the way. We are researchers, practitioners, and all-around social and behavioral science nerds. We're glad you're here for the journey. What's the connection between the built environment and our well-being? In this episode, I'll answer that question with Dr. Bill Sullivan. Bill's a professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture here at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His work examines how our present-day physical environments impose enormous demands on our capacity to pay attention and what the consequences of those demands are on our health and happiness. We'll also talk about how Bill has attempted to move this research into our built digital environments as well, and how we can create technology that preserves our health, well-being, and privacy. Bill Sullivan, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. Really, really happy to have you on today. It's my pleasure and so much to, to be spend this time with you. Great. So, Bill, I wanted to start a little bit by kind of learning more about your background, uh, a, a kind of unique one for the more recent direction that your work at the university has taken. You're a professor in architectural sciences, correct? I'm a professor of landscape architecture and in the College of Fine and Applied Arts at the University of Illinois, right? And and so it's so interesting. Uh, you're working with the Rockwire Project now at the university. What was your, your previous research like and, and what kind of brought you to this point? Ben, this is my, I'm just about to hit my 30-year anniversary on this campus. Uh, I got here in January of 92, and uh, over the course of those years, I've been focusing on measuring and documenting and understanding and creating theories and testing theories that relate to how the places we build and inhabit, the places where we live and work and play, how do these physical places impact our health and well-being? And because I'm a landscape architect, I focus uh, mostly, uh, almost exclusively on outdoor spaces. And those outdoor spaces range in size from tiny little courtyards to much larger urban settings. And so can you, can you tell me a little bit more about um, like what, what kinds of research have you, have you done in the past related to this? When I first came to Illinois in the early 90s, I finished my PhD at the University of Michigan and worked with colleagues there who focused on a variety of uh, kind of environment behavior related issues. And one of the one of the theories that grew out of that group from Stephen and Rachel Kaplan at the University of Michigan was this uh, notion that our capacity to pay attention fatigues with use. And Stephen Kaplan actually wrote a, a very important paper about this in the mid-90s, uh, which resulted in the name of attention restoration theory. And all of us, anybody that's listening to this podcast has experienced this, where you're, you're, you wake up in the morning and you're, just, you're full of the capacity to focus and get things done and knock things off your list or do deep work and um, write with vigor and intensity. And, and if you're like me, after a certain period of time, uh, you start to notice that that capacity fades or fatigues, uh, dwindles a bit. You're not as sharp. Uh, you're not as capable of um, ignoring distractions or, or putting impulses to do something else at bay. But as, as you keep focusing your attention and working hard, you just you find yourself really needing a break, craving a break. And this is a 
this is a completely consistent and coherent um, example of what almost all of us experience that with extended use, our capacity to pay attention fatigues. And this is kind of a big deal because we use our ability to focus our attention to achieve every single thing we care about in the world. You can't accomplish anything that matters to you without your ability to pay attention. You, 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 without your ability to pay attention, you can't learn, you can't evaluate as well, you, you can't plan for the future, uh, you're, you're less likely to have successful relationships, your, you, your ability to regulate your own behavior uh, decreases dramatically. So the cost of having a fatigued attention um, in the moment, at least, are pretty significant. And it turns out that the world that we've created for, for a growing number of people on the earth is a, is a world that puts enormous demands on our capacity to pay attention and that doesn't really respect the fact that it fatigues. So the consequences of that are that, you know, people are more likely to miss important cues, um, social cues and uh, make more errors, they're more likely to be irritable, uh, and they're more likely to be impulsive and kind of grab onto something that seems attractive in the moment, even though it may work against their long-term goals. So uh, this is a long preamble, isn't it? <laughs> the, the idea here is that we all depend on our capacity to pay attention, uh, to accomplish the, uh, all the things that are important to us, that capacity fatigues um, with use and the cost of that fatigue can be pretty substantial. And that brings us to attention restoration theory. Stephen Kaplan posited, uh, along with Rachel Kaplan, that the, that the kind of landscapes or views or environments that we exist in can have a pretty profound capacity to help us more quickly restore or recover our capacity to pay attention. And it turns out that uh, central to this theory is that natural element, water, trees, uh, looking at pollinators, uh, watching the birds, looking at squirrels, natural elements have a way of kind of softly holding our, what psychologists call our bottom-up attention. And when our bottom-up attention is held in a softly fascinating fashion, that gives a, us our capacity to, to rest our capacity to pay attention or our top-down attention. That attentional capacity rests and recovers more quickly than if we were like watching a football game or engaged in a, um, a video game of some sort. And so, and when you say so that, the, this, uh, this bottom up attention, uh, what are you referring to when you say bottom up attention? Bottom up attention is the kind of attention that um, we engage in all the time when we're watching something that's, or, or yeah, watching something that's kind of softly fascinating, where we don't, we don't decide to direct or focus our attention on some specific thing. So we're so watching the birds uh, mm. outside of the bird, the bird feeder. William James actually was one of the first people to actually write about this and identify this. And he talked about any, you know, stories engage our bottom-up attention, gossip, uh, anything that has the potential for aggression and violence, babies, animals. So uh, sometimes when I'm lecturing I, about this topic, I, I say, let's pretend they're all in in a really fascinating lecture, and what the and the professor is telling you something that's really 
you know, it's really important and you need to know it and focus on it. And then a, um, then a fox uh, comes into the room and, or let's pretend that the same thing's happening. And in the back of the room, there's a, a bit of an argument that's starting to break out whispers at first, and then the voices get raised a little bit. How easy would it be for you to actually focus your attention on what the faculty member was saying in that moment? Mm. And, and of course, it's just, it's completely obvious that your attention is pulled away from the, from the person standing up, blah, 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 teaching, and to the kind of interesting and compelling and um, impossible to ignore aggressive action happening at the back of the room. Uh, I see. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So it, it kind of sounds like uh, a difference almost between like system one and system two type attentions. Yeah, where, where it, it goes by a variety of names, right? Right, right. So it's you have the the attention that's very willful and deliberate and requires intense cognitive energy, and then you have the type of attention that is more passive, kind of more uh, low energy. Um, it, the kind of things that immediately grab your attention that might be bright or flashy or threatening or that stir right, your emotions right. in some way. Right, exactly right. And the, and the big, one of the big differences is that the one that requires where you decide you have this purposeful focus on some task at hand that fatigues with, with use over time. And whereas the um, system one where you're, or the, bottom-up attention or the things that are kind of softly fascinating that does not fatigue. you may get bored of looking at the birds in the bird feeder but you're but it doesn't fatigue you right right and then so your research bringing it back to landscape architecture uh, your research has showed that the the way in which our environments are built kind of changes the way in which we can deliberately attend to certain uh, things in our environments is this true well, that, that's, uh, that's one way of saying it. Yeah. The way I think about it is that, you know, humans live in a context in a, in a society today, at least in North America and in many, many places around the world where, in which our capacity to pay attention is central to our daily functioning. We get fatigued from using it and the, the landscape, if it includes natural elements like trees, grass, animals, water, that, that having exposure to those landscapes speeds recovery from the mental fatigue that many of us experience on an everyday basis. So we should all be having class outside, I think is what you're saying. Well, I never teach outside because it's, it's so interesting to sit on the quad and watch all the people go by that I have a hard time focusing my attention teaching. And I, and I can only imagine it's 10 times harder for the students. So I think what you ought to do is after class, you ought to go for a walk outside. Yes. Or if you're lucky enough to have a classroom with a window to uh, sit by the window so you can occasionally look, glance out. But taking a walk um, in a green space like our beautiful campus is a, is a really effective way, demonstrably effective way to help restore your capacity to focus for your next class. Got it. Got it. And so, so what's the, can I just tell you a little bit about, so that yeah, seems kind of nice. It seems kind of nice. Oh, it's kind of nice that you're able to concentrate and focus your attention at a higher level. But the, the, some of the earliest work that we did with my colleague, uh, Ming Kuo and, uh, and a bunch of students, we spent about 10 years working in public housing neighborhoods in Chicago. And we, we measured the density of vegetation 
around apartment buildings where people had been randomly assigned with respect to the density of the vegetation. And we found uh, some amazing outcomes. And the amazing outcomes are in part associated with our capacity to pay attention and the faster recovery. So the theory would predict that if you recover more quickly from attentional fatigue, you would be doing better off in terms of your social relationships, you'd experience, you'd be a little less likely to be impulsive, you'd be less likely to be irritable or maybe even aggressive. So among the studies that we did in those years, we looked at the levels of aggression and violence that were self-reported by women heads of households at Robert Taylor Homes, for instance. And we looked at the levels of aggression and violence that they reported with respect to their intimate partner and with the child that they had the most challenges with. And sure enough, the, the, the level or the density of the vegetation immediately outside the woman's apartment was a strong uh, and significant predictor of the level of aggression and violence, both mild violence and severe violence that they reported that they'd engaged in with their partners over the last year and with their, the child that they had the most uh, challenges with. Uh, and this is exactly what the theory would predict. So the consequences are really profound. We also measured the strength of neighborhood social ties among people that lived at Robert Taylor Homes. And we found that the density of the vegetation outside of women's apartment was a strong and significant predictor of the, not her global network of social ties, but the network of social ties immediately around her at Robert Taylor Homes. Things like hmm. knowing their neighbors, being able to name them, saying that they'd either lent things to them or borrowed things from them, that they knew their children, that they watched their children for each other, um, these kinds of things. So, you know, these Robert Taylor homes at the time was, it was two census tract neighborhoods and both of those neighborhoods were among the 10 poorest neighborhoods in the United States, 10 poorest census tract neighborhoods in the United States. And for people who live in deep poverty, the first line of defense in terms of tackling the struggles and the challenges you face are our family and nearby neighbors. And if you have a stronger set of ties with your nearby neighbors, you're, you're, um, you have a little bit of a leg up in terms of overcoming the challenges that you face and dealing with problems that you're grappling with. And as you know, people who live in deep poverty in uh, North America, the problems they face are nearly are constant constant and and significant so this is a this is a group of people who are are pretty constantly using their capacity to pay attention to uh, solve the problems and challenges that they face on a daily basis and a little bit of vegetation outside their apartment buildings is enough to have measurable differences and decreases in uh, the levels of aggression and violence they engage in and the and in, in a positive way uh, predict the strength of their neighborhood social ties. This is a, is a really interesting finding. Um, and I, I also like that you're thinking about it through the, this like lens of attention because you might look at it and say, oh yeah, like nature calms me down. And you could kind of think about you know one reason for that occurring or another. But it's it's really interesting too to think about it through this lens of it, it allows you to to regulate and control your your attention, and that everything that we do as people in the world today requires us to be very deliberate in where we put and maintain our attention. And can I ask, did you have like a moment where 
it, it just kind of dawned on you that this is really the thing. Like, this is the really important thing that I have that I have to study. You know how some people have that, that aha moment where it, it finally like strikes them, the, the importance, the gravity of that one thing. Did you have a moment like that? I did kind of have a moment like that, but it, it wasn't as, um, I didn't know enough yet to understand the, the kind of emotional feeling and kind of sense of like a pr pregnancy, uh, like a sense of like, well, there's something so rich here. I got to figure this out. So when I was a young man, I worked for a landscape contractor. And hmm. at first I started just mowing lawns. And then as uh, in high school, I started doing more sophisticated work. And then uh, through, all through college, I, during summer breaks and Christmas breaks and spring breaks, I would um, work for him and, and I would work on building, building landscapes. And some of those landscapes were small scale, small site uh, places, and some were a little larger. And so often as we finished up the development of some place, I, I reflected on the, what it looked like before and what it looked like now and what I imagined it would look like in 10 years. And I, and I just felt like, you know, what we've done here is so much more than make it look pretty. It just feels like this is a supportive place to come work in, or this is so much nicer to go to school here, or this is so much nicer to be able to look at my office window or to come home to. And I, so I had this kind of inkling of this has got to be better. This has just got to be better for people. And I didn't realize that there was a field called environment and behavior or that landscape architects not only built places, designed and built places like these things, but but they actually studied the the impacts of those places and it and then after university and, and when I was in grad school I started reconnecting with that idea and started thinking oh really I really want to study and try and understand more deeply what it is about these places that seems like it has these outcomes that seem so positive and I didn't know at the time that they, that we'd actually be able to measure heart rates and hormones and brain waves and do fMRI scans <laughs> And actually confirm these very uh, these these ideas at that time, but sure enough, it was it was out there. When I went to Michigan and studied with Stephen Rachel Kaplan, they had kind of a they'd laid out a theoretical framework and done some very important initial studies that really opened the door to this work. And I I got lucky to I was incredibly lucky to do my PhD with them and then kind of have this pathway <laughs> paved. They did a lot of the hard work of paving the pathway and I just walk I stepped on that pathway and followed the follow the steps I was going to make a, a very very bad joke about how maybe if you're trying to get into landscape architecture as a research professional you should have an internship mowing lawns <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably not a bad idea <laughs> and it sounds like that was a really formative part of of the experience for you I, it sure was it sure was all those years working for a landscape contract were very, very important in terms of my own development and then my experience to be able to uh, teach uh, design then later because I built a lot of these places. So, yeah. Yeah, right on. So this kind of brings us, I think, uh, more to, to the present day. Now, you know, um, you're kind of got this new project that you're working with through the university, the Rockwire project. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that project is? Some of our listeners may have heard about it before, but tell us a little bit what that is and, and how did you get selected for, for this project? project is part of the Smart Healthy Communities Initiative, which is run out of the provost's office here on campus. And all that started was uh, we have an alum, John Paul, uh, who goes by JP. 
and JP got his uh, degree in mechanical engineering here at Illinois in I think 76 or so, 77. And he stayed on and he worked at DCL in the computer lab there and ran the computer lab for a few years and then went off and kind of went to the who's who of computing in the late 70s, all through the 80s and 90s, and aughts, working, working at Netscape and first at Compact and then Netscape and AOL and Roku and Sling TV and Dish. And uh, finally, he started a company when the San Francisco 49ers football team was building Levi Stadium. He got a call from the ownership asking him to help them make their brand new stadium the most technologically advanced stadium in the world. And he created a he created a system or an ecology in Levi Stadium such that on a Sunday when they had football games there, that that place was kind of like a smart city. So it had a bunch of sensors in the in the stadium and they had a they developed an app for people's phones and you could download the app and opt in to engaging in a variety of things such that you could, on game day, for instance, you'd fire up the app and the app would tell you it's game day and give you the fastest route from your location to the, to the stadium. When you got to the stadium parking lot, stop showing you the uh, map of how to get there and it uh, displayed your digital tickets. And you'd scan your digital tickets and you'd look back at your phone and your digital tickets are gone and it shows you a route to your seat and hmm. you follow that route to your seat. And when you got to your seat, it, it asked you, it gave you two quick options. One, do you want to order any, anything to eat or drink? Or do you want to know where the closest washroom is and how long the lines are? And so it kind of anticipated what people would do and gave them the kind of information that they needed at the time. And when Andre Congolaris, our current provost, was dean of the College of Engineering, he met JP at an alumni event, and they started talking about this various topic. And Andreas and I and several other people had been involved in, a, in an effort that uh, ended up not going anyplace a couple of years prior to this, in which we developed a group of folks on campus to focus on smart cities. And at some point, I Andreas remembers this. I don't really remember this, but Andreas tells me that he was struck by a comment that I made in one of those meetings in, one, in which I said something to the effect of, you know, lots and lots of places are working on smart cities, and it's going to be hard for us to distinguish ourselves if we work on smart cities within this larger competitive space. But given the people that we've got on our campus and the deep the depth of scholarship going on here, we probably could make a, an immediate impact if we worked on smart, healthy places. So we put the psychological and physical health together with the smart piece. We could probably do something. So when he met, when Andreas met JP, he they started talking about the, the Levi Stadium and Andreas said, do you, do you think that could scale up to the size of a campus? And JP thought about it for a minute and, and he said he thought it could happen and that led to a series of conversations that Andreas and I had and we invited JP out in September of 2018 and explored the possibility of developing a, a program like this on campus that was focused on a variety of health outcomes, health measures, and it's grown to include uh, more work on student success and student engagement with a huge emphasis on privacy. So. That's how it got started, and I think you asked how I 
How did you get to be, uh, you know, the admiral of the ship here? Like, I, I see the connections. It might not be so obvious to, to some of our listeners, but to me, it seems like there is a, a pretty real connection between the environments that we uh, are surrounded by. You know, are we in nature? Are we surrounded by concrete? How much vegetation is near me? Is it open versus closed spaces? The environments that we're surrounded, the environments around us are, are kind of similar to the environment of our digital you know devices so i'm, I'm mm -hmm. you know, my my phone has as much ability to direct or scatter my attention as the things that are around me physically it seems i think there's that and i also think that andreas was looking for a person who was not in engineering who could who had a depth of experience with the both with engineering but also broader aspects of campus and you know my connection to the social sciences and to fine and applied arts meant that i had a broad a broad reach across campus. And I think that was another aspect, plus plus our previous work together on questions about smart cities and some previous publications I had in this area that, that led him to seek me out. Yeah, for sure. And and I wanna I wanna ask also about this idea of a smart city. So I, I kind of understand it in the sense of a stadium where, okay, it's going to direct me to the stadium. It's going to produce my tickets. It's going to help me order food and beverages. In, in the context of a city, what does this look like? This is a really complicated question. And, you know, Pete, you have a way of finding, putting your finger on these really interesting and, and challenging questions. And, and I, I guess at this point, I would say, I don't know yet looks like and that's one of the reasons that we're focused on a campus level because it's a, a much smaller scale place with a set of people who have a who have a diverse set of agendas but not so not as diverse as the people that live in Chicago for instance or even people that live in Rantoul because there's a there's a set of common activities a shared agenda that we have on a campus that's makes this challenge of a smart city a little bit easier to explore and experiment with kind of as a, a campus as a test bed of exploring these ideas and i have much greater clarity on what we're trying to do with respect to using digital tools to enhance and promote the experience of people that that come to school here or work here than i do thinking about you know what would it be like to launch this in San Francisco or Mumbai, for instance. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the, the specific features then, so the Smart and Connected Communities Initiative is, is kind of the, the thing that is holding together RockWire. RockWire is this technology platform, but what, in what kinds of ways would the Smart and Healthy Communities Initiative try to make student life better or city life better? Well, the, um, one of the, as, you, as you know, and as many of the listeners will know, one of the big issues in, on campuses all across uh, the world today is kind of this um, recognition that mental health issues on campus, both for students and people that work on campuses, is a, I don't know if it's a, at a crisis level, but it needs much more attention and focus and resources than we've been giving it. There's a, great, a much greater demand for mental health resources than there has been in the past, and the, this, this demand still seems to be growing. So one of the things that we're doing is we convened a committee of health, mental health, and wellness practitioners on campus, people from the Counseling Center and from DREZ and from McKinley Health Center, psychologists, people who are social workers, 
people who are psychologists and psychiatrists, people who have um, degrees in recreation and nutrition who serve on this committee. That, and these folks are advising us about, they're helping us understand the larger landscape of health and wellness on campus and helping us figure out ways to make that landscape visible and easily connected to our students. And our idea here is that we would be using the phone and the app in the phone as the as the as a way to help students get connected to the resources that they need when they need it in a form that is useful to them at in the moment of their need. And can you so that's an example. I, I can, go ahead. What would be what would be like an example of that? So imagine I'm a student and I've got just like paint a picture of an example where the phone would really help. So, if you consent to participate in these activities and you and you consent in the app to allow data to be used in this fashion, we'll have a way of collecting data about your activities and patterns of behavior. And we could, now we haven't built any of this yet, but some of the ideas that have come up are things like using, uh, connecting your calendar in your phone to your assignments and projects in Canvas. And so you can, so you can work the schedule in time on your calendar for the activities that you've made commitments for. And also that it could prompt you to say, Hey, you know what? It looks like you're, it, it looks like you are building in a huge amount of work time. Is there either, you know, would you like to schedule in some leisure time and maybe prompt a student based also that their consent and permission to collect these data and to receive notifications. Maybe they'd like to know when there's live music playing or when there's a play, uh, a theater event or a dance or hmm. some other type of recreation activity. They could actually prompt, be prompted to build that into their schedule as a way to help them diversify their activities and take some occasional breaks. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. One thing I want to, I, I want to ask, I think a lot of our listeners will be curious about this too. What's the benefit of creating an app that houses all of these different features as opposed to, oh, you know, I, I have an app for, you know, finding music that's local to me. Like I'll just go to this app and I'll do that. Or I'll go to, you know, Facebook to do, you know, the, the, the groups that are around me on campus. There must be some real meaningful benefit to having these features in, in one particular app maybe bound by geography or location? I mean, in your mind, what's the edge that the Rockwire provides by consolidating all of these? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a really important question because you're absolutely right. There are all these apps and you can look at your phone uh, or you could, you and I could sit and scroll through the screen after screen after screen of apps I've got on my phone, the vast majority of which I don't use. And that's because I, I forget about them. And, or in the moment, that it's just that, I use them so infrequently that in the moment I'm not prompted to uh, pick them up and use them. And in the focus groups that we've done, this is one of the things that we've learned. Uh, students have said again and again and again and again, it's probably the most important or most frequent comment that we've received from students is, how come the university has all these dozens and dozens of web pages and different kinds of apps and different kinds of learning management systems? And I got to you're asking me to come into the campus and learn all this stuff in a way that adds a burden to me to make your life easier. So you got a psychology or a counseling app and you got a nutrition app and you got an exercise app and you got a class scheduling app. And it's, it's, it's overwhelming to me as a, as a, 
a new person on this campus. Can't you just have one thing that I can engage campus with? And we've heard that again and again and again. And one of the things that we're trying to do is take these ideas and um, build something that's really intuitive and easy to use that doesn't add a big kind of cognitive burden to you as you're trying to figure out how to move through your day and accomplish your most important goals. The other thing that we're trying to do is we're doing this. It doesn't have ads in it. It doesn't, doesn't prompt you in distracting fashions to take your attention away from the things that you need to be paying attention to. And we're trying and we're working really hard in the, the next uh, year. We're going to be working very hard to create a kind of curated set of experiences that are more likely associated with you as an individual, your patterns of behavior, your preferences, the tags that you've told us, the, the things you're interested in doing, and over time connecting that to your own personal schedule. So you might say to the app, for instance, you need time, you need time for deep work every day. And maybe the, the app then could shut off all notifications and close down your social media for a period of time while you're engaged in that so that it really drives your agenda and puts you in the driver's seat as opposed to so many of the tools that, you've, that, you, that are on your phone and are on my phone. Part of what they do, a large part of what they do is they stimulate our, our uh, soft fascination, makes it, makes it hard to put them down. But in doing so, they use, they, two things happen. One is they collect our data, often against our will or against our knowledge. And secondly, they target ads at us that, and the ads are so well targeted. They, they get to know us so well that they target ads at us that when those ads show up, they're kind of enticing, enticing little distractions in and of themselves. So we're, we're, we're removing those kinds of distractions from the, from the app in an in effort to support people and their agendas. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's, I mean, a couple of thoughts come to mind. I mean, number one, I, I can really see the consistent theme of attention management that is kind of pervasive in your interests and the, you know, the, the work you've done in the past and kind of what it is you're doing in Rockwire and the Smart and Healthy uh, the Smart and Connected Communities Initiative. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The other thing is that it's striking to me that this seems like it could be an app ecosystem that's, you know, it sounds like it'll house, it'll house multiple apps. It sounds to me like it could be kind of a different ecosystem that's supported by a different incentivizing structure than, you know, what you typically see from a big tech company. So Rockwire collects data or the, the platform will collect data from students who, you know, sign in to use it, but you you mentioned giving students some control over their privacy and their settings. Can you tell me a little bit more kind of about that? And if, if that's done, how does it support itself? Like what keeps it afloat financially? Oh, that's an excellent question. And let me just give you a, kind of a big picture overview here. So anytime you use an app, or let's say you want to build an app, you want to build an app for your own uh, purposes of some sort. And I want to do, I want to build my, an app for my purposes as well. So I'm going to build a kind of nature observing app and you're going to build bicycle, something related to bicycle exercise and health. And even though the two things that we're doing are very different from each other, we're going to have to do a lot of things that are almost identical. So anytime somebody fires up the app, we're going to have to know who it is so that we present them with information that's directed towards them. So we have to create profile for them. We, we have to know who it is too. So we have to have authentication. Right, um, right. Then we have to find a way to store the data and do it in a fashion that's 
that encrypts or protects personally identifiable information. And we might store information like a credit card, for instance, that you, you want to make darn sure is uh, safe on your app. Anyway, there's a set of things that we would have to have in common that we do in common for the two apps that you and I are interested in building, even though what we're trying to accomplish in the end is very different. These building blocks that we have to put together are very, very similar. And so what we're, one of the things that we're doing within the Rockwire initiative is we are building these building blocks and we're releasing them as open source software to the world. And, and the building blocks or any of the apps that we generate from the build, that we build on top of the building blocks, not really apps, the the capacities that make that the building blocks make possible. We're releasing all of that as open source software available for anyone to download anywhere in the world for free. All that we ask is that they assign uh, they sign the Apache 2.0 license, which indicates that if they make improvements to the base code, that they'll share that back with the larger community. That's that's essentially what the Apache license requires that mm. we're sharing this with you and if you make a if you make a change that seems like a good idea that you share that back with us so that we can incorporate that in the next version that we release to the so the other people in the world who want to use the software can take advantage of your innovation okay so what does that mean so that means that over time after we complete these sets of building blocks two wonderful things happen one is that you can now build an app that you can download our building blocks and you can build your particular bicycle nutrition app on top of that and save 75% of the development costs hmm. associated with the app that you want to build. And the second thing is because this is open source and we've invited the world in to help build this, it means that those building blocks as innovations occur throughout the world with respect to the software that we're using or the algorithms that are out there, those can be brought into the app and or into the uh, building blocks, which means it stays fresh, it stays up to date, and you don't have to maintain that portion of your of the app. So it's a it's initial savings that's very substantial, and it's an ongoing savings because you're develop, you're building on something that we that we share as a larger a larger community. And, and so this is uh, super interesting, actually. Can you tell me a little bit more about financially then what keeps the project running? If it's free to download, uh, really cool that you know anybody can get the code, modify it, share it back, and improve it. But what's the? I think what people might ask is, well, how does it financially all work then? The plan right now is that um, over time, some of the things that the university charges for that get paid for, like we have these different learning management systems that we pay enormous amounts of money for, so we could work with uh, Canvas, for instance, and we could integrate Canvas into our app. And then if you want to turn Canvas on, the university could either do that globally and pay for, pay their fee, in which case we would, we'd have a kind of an app store-like charge that would go along with that. But we wouldn't use the Apple pricing model of 30%. We'd use a much smaller uh, percentage, and we would expect that that stream of income could uh, is going to keep us alive and up and up and running. So, so okay, that's interesting. Then, so it sounds to me like you won't be you won't be charging anybody who uses the app for any of its services, right? So, whereas 
other products like you know Google or Facebook, they obviously don't charge either, but the way in which they stay afloat financially is by uh, using your data to curate, for example, better ads. In this case, though, it looks like there's not going to be any cost to the person, and they're not necessarily going to—they're not going to have any of their information sold. Right? Am I am I understanding this correctly? That's that's exactly right. And um, so, for instance, uh, I was on campus this morning, and I used the app Mobile Meter to pay for a parking meter. And uh, we've been talking about integrating that feature into the app. And if we do, then we would simply just take a tiny portion of the of the sale the mobile meter if somebody uses it through the app so what we're saying is that we're not selling people's we're not collecting people's data in order to sell it we have very strong privacy policies and maybe you'll ask me about uh, some of those in a few minutes but the idea is that we're not we're not generating ads to distract people we're not monetizing it through that we're we're the plan is to monetize it through the the sale of services that support teaching and learning and research on campus Got it. That, are, that, that universities already pay for. I see, I see. So uh, maybe you can actually then tell me a little bit more about the specific privacy protecting features. I think a lot of our listeners will be really curious to hear about you know, what it is about the system that is able to protect people's privacy in a way that maybe some other platforms or other companies don't. Well, the first thing that we do is that we have a very strong commitment to privacy and we take a privacy first or privacy by design approach. And that has a few important, if that's your goal, privacy by design, then there's a set of uh, actions that you need to take that we are certainly taking. The first is that we don't think of privacy, of agreeing to our privacy policy as a binary yes or no option. In fact, there are many, many ways in which apps can collect data about you that may feel like an infringement on your privacy. And in each of those cases, we stop and ask your permission. We seek your consent so that if you if you say you want to do something that requires location services to be turned on, we ask you, we tell you, oh, this would require location services to be turned on. Do you, do you, do you want to do that? And so instead of saying, instead of having a blanket privacy policy that's written by attorneys who seem to be trained in obfuscation and uh, creating language that's difficult for normal humans to ingest, we have a very clear privacy policy that we tell people, we ask their consent, and then we act on that by when people want to do something in the app that uh, would collect a new piece of data from them that they haven't consented to in the past, we stop and we ask at that point. And we tell how they're going to use So we ask for consent and we tell how, how we're going to use the data. And here's the most important piece. We provide you the opportunity to say, to not only say stop collecting data, but to reach back in time and say, get rid of my data. Now, lots and lots of apps are starting to tell you that they can do that. And I think it's really hard to trust those apps when they say that because they were built in the aughts and in the teens when those capacities were never thought about. And therefore, there's copies of the those of your data living in servers all over the place. And it's really impossible it would be impossible, essentially, to go back in time and delete all my Google data, for instance. Mm -hmm. Right. But we're, we're building a platform from the first day with that goal in mind so that we can do that. Now, here's, here's the distinction, Pete, and I should be very clear about this. So if, I, if we do build that mobile meter component into our app, we'll follow our 
privacy guidelines. But mobile meter, if they have access to your credit card, well, then they have that data and we can't control what they do with it. So you'll have a different agreement with mobile meter than you right. have with us. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And do you think that that kind of arrangement will be common where, where there will be like a third party who that you know, is working oh, within? Our, yeah. In our app? Oh, yeah. Um, I would expect, yeah, I would expect a lot of third parties would be interested in integrating with us. So, and and there's there's got to be some uh, system for protecting students' privacy with the idea that Rockwire is kind of the person in the middle, the buffer between you know the the student or the the person and the third party. And we're working very hard on that. And in fact, we've got this idea that we call the Rock Wall that will be putting sensitive data in this data enclave that's highly secure and really protected. This is a research project that we're engaging with a number of scholars on campus, and uh, we're figuring out both how to do this and to do it in a way that gives people confidence and assurance that they can contribute or that they can allow us to use data that is sensitive or personally identifiable. And at right. the same time, feel feel that it's protected at the highest standards possible today. Right, right. So this is everything that you're describing is is really interesting, and I think I'm starting to see some of like the major possible implications of this. And I'm, I was hoping that maybe you could articulate, though, in your mind, what's the what's the grand vision, or what are some of the big ambitious goals uh, that the team has for what this kind of platform can be. Well, before I get to the big goal, let's, let me just say that those of us who are working so hard on this are, un we understand that for the vast majority of young people, the, their smartphone is the habitat that they spend an enormous amount of their time in. Mm. And it's the, it's the habitat through which they seek information, social engagement, entertainment, mm -hmm. uh, health-related information, tracking all kinds of information about their, uh, their own goals and their metrics with respect to life. And so our, our vision starts with that recognition. And then our vision is to, is to create tools that support an individual's agenda and their health and well-being. In, in ways that uh, they're, they're in control of the data and they can decide the, the extent and use of the data in support of their, uh, of, of their goals in ways that they, that they feel comfortable with. And the, the extent or reach of this can be pretty vast. So for instance, given, the, given what we learned through data collection and data protection and privacy related issues as we developed Safer Illinois, and, and what is, uh, for our listeners, so, uh, what is Safer Illinois? Safer Illinois is the app that we developed. Uh, we built it on the pl Rockwire platform using the same building blocks that we're using to support the student-focused app, uh, the Illinois app. And we use that to support our COVID response efforts on campus that we call SHIELD, in which people have been, over the last year and some months, people have been testing using the, the saliva-based test on campus. They sign in with their app. They scan a QR code associated with their app that's connected to the campus health services, health service, which initiates a, an order from the lead physician, Dr. Parker. The 
a little uh, QR code is uh, printed on a uh, out, so you can put it on this little tube, and you you dribble some saliva into this tube. It gets put into a rack, and it gets collected every hour. The rack gets collected, taken to a laboratory on campus where they do a PCR test. Okay, I, PCR. I think I'm. I think I understand. What it's it's the yeah. it's the the app that we on campus would use to manage the COVID nineteen testing. That's a, you know that's exactly right. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, so, so, I just I just wanted to clear safer, that up for people. Yeah, yeah. I have to go through the entire thing. Yes, Safer Illinois uh, is the app that we use on campus to manage uh, the entire COVID nineteen pandemic response, okay, keeping people it. healthy, healthy and safe. And got as it. part of that, we collect sensitive data about people and and have access to their health records. And we've figured out ways to do this that are very protective of people's private data. Uh, we encrypt data in transit and on the phone, in the cloud, done a great job with it. So one of the things that we've learned through the process of developing Safer Illinois is that we can use, we can handle health data in that fashion. And there's some uh, initial work right now on thinking about, gosh, how can we support healthcare institutions as they focus on rural populations and chronic diseases? And so there's an effort with OSF Healthcare and a private sector com company called Rock Metro that has used the open source software to engage with OSF Healthcare to kind of provide the kind of support that we've used in Safer Illinois to help people understand where they're at with a variety of metrics related to whatever chronic disease they have or set of diseases and gives them information about the next steps and how to, how to most effectively maintain their health. So that's uh, that's one thing, and we're also working on campus with respect to mental health and wellness, and physical health, and recreation. We're talking about integrating with the learning management systems on campus, like Canvas. So you've got one app that deals with a, a whole range of things in your student experience. Uh, there's a discussions about a whole variety of other potentials as well in terms of having students apply to the University of Illinois through the app, receive their their admissions information via the app, do their first onboarding and stuff like that through the app. So there's a whole variety of issues. Got it, got it. A pretty fundamental difference between what you guys are doing and all the other apps that are that are kind of out there trying to do these things separately is that it's an ecosystem that has a fundamentally, it sounds like different set of priorities. That's exactly right. It's an ecosystem that has a fundamentally different set of priorities and economic model to function. And we're not collecting data on individuals in order to um, amass a huge amount of data that sell it and make billions. We're collecting data in the service of the users who've consented to participate in some activity that's associated with the collection and use of, the, of, of that data. The other thing is because it's open source, it's an opportunity for anybody on our campus and, and indeed anybody in the world to um, kind of come up with a, a very place specific or neighborhood specific or context specific problem and potential solution that they can then help build. They can be a part of a solution in their neighborhood or in their community with respect to the whatever community they might be in, if it's a physical community or a digital community. So it, it shifts the power from these huge tech corporations whose code is difficult, if not impossible to get at, to, to a much more democratic model that invites participation from local individuals and local groups to address challenges or opportunities in, that are particular to their locale. This 
seems to align particularly well with the University of Illinois' value as a land-grant institution. I think a lot about the, you know, and for our listeners who aren't necessarily familiar, U of I is a land-grant institution, so it, it's meant to serve, uh, first and foremost, the, the people of, of the state of, of Illinois. And obviously, with the scalability of technology, you have the possibility of servicing as well, broadly more people in the United States. Obviously, University of Illinois, we do research all over the world. Um, but, you know, as a land-grant institution, that kind of philosophy of service to our constituents is kind of baked into the institution. And I don't really see a lot of that kind of philosophy playing out through digital means. And this seems to me like a really, a really important step forward in that space, if, if I'm understanding it correctly. Well, thank you, Peter. I think you, I think you put it beautifully, and that's exactly one of our goals: is to uh, is to shift the experts out of the center, and and or to say another way to say this would be to share that center space with the people of the state of Illinois to seek in the great tradition of a land grant institution to understand the challenges and problems that people face to use the resources and expertise and wisdom and technology of campus to engage deeply with those individuals in kind of the co-creation of solutions to address those challenges and then to collect data about how that whole process went in order to advance our larger understanding and then share that understanding with the world and then take on the next set of, ch of challenges. And, and what the Rockwire platform allows us to do is it allows people to kind of self-nominate or propose solutions to challenges that we've never even heard of, that we're not connected to, that we're unaware of. And they can pose those to us in a variety of ways and either develop the code themselves or work with us to develop the code and kind of put their challenges and their opportunities and priorities more towards the center. In the same vein as being a land-grant university that's doing this work for the, for the purpose of bettering the lives of the constituents, can you tell me a little bit more about some of the, the community-facing kind of capabilities that Rockwire has, and in particular, the most recent community-facing project that, that you're working on now? Well, we've got a number of opportunities that we're exploring working with, with our neighbors. And one is a, a recently funded uh, grant from the National Science Foundation to do a to, to, to work with our neighbors in Champaign County here to explore the possibility that we might use the Rockware platform and develop an app that could help address some of the violence-related issues that we're facing, not just in Champaign County, but nationally today. But the focus will be a very local effort with real living, breathing human beings who, who have two characteristics. <laughs> Uh, first, all of us live in this community, and some of us have deep expertise in the kind of um, theoretical and kind of the models of what promotes violence and what might tamp violence down. So we have an academic experience teaching this information and the, the, doing research and figuring out what kind of interventions work and producing scholarly articles and advancing our knowledge along these lines. And other people put as much effort into thinking about how to do these things with actual living human beings in the moment, in the community, in the neighborhoods, uh, in the schools. And so what we're 
what we've proposed to do and what we've been funded to do is to bring these groups of folks together and explore the extent to which the platform might uh, serve as a launching point for an app that could help community members, neighbors, and, and others the possibility to identify challenges or the precursors to some of these violence and see if there's opportunities for interventions. Now, that may sound a little vague, and the fact is, it is vague because we we were we are committed to not coming into these discussions with a solution in hand we're going to develop a solution based on a series of focused and guided conversations over a period of many weeks with with our colleagues uh, in the community as someone who's done sounds like a lot of community engaged research before can you tell me kind of what's the significance of doing that and I mean, I, I understand and I know that it matters, but for our listeners, like, why does it matter to have those conversations with the community if you're trying to do research? I mean, if Google can make a, an app, right, that'll help people get from point A to point B, you know, very efficiently, what's the benefit of doing all of the, the conversation with the community members, our neighbors that you're doing? Yeah, thank, thank you for that question. It's a really important question, and, and I can answer it from a couple of perspectives. Kind of the most utilitarian perspective is to say that when you engage deeply and sincerely over a period of time with the folks you're working with on a, on a problem that, that you both care deeply about or that you all care deeply about, you're much more likely to have innovations occur than would occur from an older, bald, white guy like me sitting in my office staring at the <laughs> ceiling and, and thinking things up. So community engagement, um, kind of serious, real, in some ways slow community engagement that builds trust and opportunities is, is probably one of the fastest ways to create innovations around a lot of these social problems. Mm-hmm. Another answer is that if you're serious about these problems, you can't solve them without developing relationships with people who experience them on a daily basis. And you can't, you can't swoop in at the last minute and say, oh, I got a grant and I'm, I want to collect data and have a deep enough relationship. I mean, that can, not only deep enough relationship, I mean, that can be just downright insulting. And it has been too, it has been the case too often. So what, what our group is very committed to is gauging community members right from the beginning in a very serious and honest effort to kind of co-create the, the possibilities here. And, you know, we may get to the end of this, Pete, and we may decide there's no there's no role for an app here. That'd be a, a worthwhile and fine outcome because we'll have explored a, a whole variety of possibilities. Or it may be that we'll come up with a solution that really grows from the innovation and insight, the wisdom and expertise and deep experience that people have who grapple with these problems on a daily basis. That's kind of my, I'm, I'm, my sense is that's probably what's going to happen just based on my experience. Uh, and I'm very excited to find out which way it's going to go. It sounds like the the one application though, that it's got a lot of momentum behind it is this feature in the app or an app that will exist on the Rockwire platform and that can be used in some way to combat community violence and to strengthen community ties. I still feel like there's probably a lot of other different possible things that Rockwire could do, you know, with the community. I mean, we've talked about some of the different things that it could do for students on a university campus, but it seems to me like, and especially if it has some of these features, 
that are meant to preserve people's privacy and prioritize people's needs and not sell their data, obviously. It seems to me like there's so much potential for an app like this or an ecosystem like this to actually make for some really useful products. Are, are there other features or developments that are kind of in your on your plate for the future? Like, what are you thinking the next steps might be? Well, there's a couple that, uh, that are on, on the plate right now. And one would be thinking about how you might use an app or an ecosystem that we've like we've developed as a way to support people who've been who've experienced intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. People that have experienced intimate partner violence are surprisingly reluctant, or I'm not sure if the, I'm not sure if it's right to say surprisingly reluctant, are very often reluctant to come forward and take advantage of a wealth of the resources that are available to them uh, on campus or in the community. So one one of the things that we're working on is uh, we've written a grant that we've got. I think I'm very hopeful that we'll, this will be funded. That'll help us explore that issue. Another really pressing problem in society that's incredibly challenging right now is the amount of nonsense that exists uh, masquerading as the truth. And I was at an event this morning, I talked to Julie Pride, the director of the Champaign-Urbana Public Health District, and she told me about people going out to farm and fleet and buying some type of medication that's used horses. And people actually taking this drug because they've learned from Facebook that this is a better medication than the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. It's balderdash. It's a it's a it's a lie. And yet it's being presented to people in a way that compels them to go and spend money in something that's very at the very, very best will not help them at all and certainly puts them at risk if they choose to do this versus getting the vaccine and may even add additional risk because who knows, you know, what, if you're taking this horse medication, what, what does that mean in terms of your own health and well-being? So the misinformation that's out there that's endemic in our society with respect to not just the, the, the uh, SARS-CoV-2, but all kinds of issues related to politics and community development and social justice issues and issues around immigration or incarceration, the, the, the kind of nonsense that's out there that people are consuming is a real threat, I think, to our democracy and our capacity to engage citizens in thoughtful debate about how we should advance ourselves collectively. So there's, there's really interesting and compelling discussions going on with scholars on campus about how we might work together collectively to somehow interrupt this set of um, the information that's clearly false and is designed in many ways to divide us. And then I wonder too, if Rockwire's kind of unique orientation towards privacy and prioritizing people's motivations and people's goals could, could be an asset here. Well, we hope so. We, we hope so. We hope that the, the, the uniqueness of our model in which we protect people's data, we don't monetize it. And we work very hard to keep it incredibly secure, as secure as we can with data in this digital age, will generate a level of trust that, and we er, that we will earn the trust of people such that if we develop tools that help people understand, well, this is this is likely very, very good science. This is this is likely balderdash or malarkey, then that they'll be a little bit more likely to believe it. I totally see the need there. That makes a, that makes a lot of sense to me. That sounds like a really exciting project. Obviously, we'll be really interested to see how the development of that project plays out. Well, one of the exciting things that 
about this project is that it gives me and our groups a chance to work together. So the Rockwire Group and the Center for Social and Behavioral Sciences is an incredibly rich opportunity for connection. And I want to say the same thing for the Interdisciplinary Health Sciences Initiative, IHSI. I think connecting with your center and that initiative are going to provide us the kind of intellect and energy theories and data exploration that uh, allow us to do some really incredibly powerful things in the service of the citizens of Illinois and the people of the world. It sounds like there's, uh, and I, I agree, I'm super excited for our collaboration and for collaborating with you know some of our other departments here on campus. And it sounds like we have some really cool things cooking. So Bill, any other things you want to mention before we sign off today? Just that it's been a pleasure to talk with you, Pete, and I look forward to our future discussions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Pete.